Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sampodasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sampodasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sampodasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened. So, as usual, just start off by um, answering one or two questions and a couple of things that turned up in the interviews, mainly uh, thanks to Penny. Um, Noting, observing, the distinction... Uh, observing, if you use the um, if you use the two words noting and noticing. So, in uh, for instance, you might hear people like Joseph Goldstein making that distinction. So, noting the note, the actual word, is coming from the faculty of the intellect. But that which knows, that which actually feels and sees, is the faculty of knowing. See, so that's why. The noting, as it were, comes intermittent, pointing the attention at the object, but the knowing is constant. See? And all you're doing with the noting is employing the intellect to your benefit. That's all. Now, if you, if you don't note, like in many systems they don't note, I mean, that's fine, but unwittingly uh, you could be looking at something through a concept. See? But when you make, but when you employ the intellect, and you use a word like breathing, it's as though the intellect has been uh, reduced to this word, and you can see the object more clearly beyond it. That makes sense. <laughs> for instance, I'm trying to think of it. For instance, now, um, I point out that there are three things when you watch the breath. There's the concept of rising and falling. There's an idea in the mind. It's connecting all these sensations, and it's got a concept of rising and falling, or expanding and whatever. It's got an image. You've got an image of, of, your, of your abdomen. Huh? And there are sensations caused by the breath. Right? Now, the first two are concepts. They're created by the mind. They don't actually exist. Or put it this way, they only exist in the mind. What actually exists in terms of direct experience are the sensations. See? So by saying rising and falling, you're acknowledging that this process that you're seeing, which looks like rising and falling, is a mental concept. And you keep, as it were, attending to that slowly, more and more, getting in contact with the sensations as such. You see? And that way, this intellect is receding. You're still using the noting, but it's as though you're getting closer to the sense body. Right? Same with pain, you see. Um, You're looking at pain, and you're saying pain, pain. Now, this pain is a concept, and it comes comes with it... um, uh, lots of uh, attitudes, like you don't want it. That's a simple one. So you're looking at pain, and you note your resistance, and you're still saying pain, and still observing it as pain. Now, uh, you know, you've heard me say the position of the observer, the feeler, is your first position. As it were, you've pushed the object outward from, from yourself, and you're looking at it, or you're feeling it. See, it's there. I'm up here. This... And this pain is down here somewhere, okay? So I'm down here looking at it, and there's a distance. Now, uh, to do it, I've done that in order to see what my reaction is. So I can see now that I've, you know, there's this resistance. And I'm just there watching, feeling, feeling this resistance, calling it resistance, calling it pain, see, until it begins to fade away. At this point, I've got this equanimity, I'm very still with this pain, presuming it's not ridiculous. Eh? And this pain, I'm looking at it, pain, pain, you see. Now, 
I, as it were, focus in on it, microscope in on it, so that the distance begins to reduce. Yeah? And this word pain, uh, at some point, doesn't fit the experience. As I get close into the pain, what I'm actually feeling is pressure, heat, uh, and so on. See? So the noting changes. The noting changes, and I notice that at that level, there's equanimity. See, I'm perfectly all right with sensations as sensations. As I step back from that, which I can do, you see, I notice the word pain returns. And with pain, the concept of not wanting. Then I begin to realize that there are only sensations coming from the body, and it's the mind that's creating pain. See, now it's the same with any illness. Uh, you catch a cold... Or, or, or something even worse, say, say no. And the mind immediately launches into a future. You get the flu and it's going to be three, four, five days of misery. See? So you've already established that the next few days are going to be terrible. You see, you can't. <laughs> That's what the mind does. But when you come back to the illness, when you come back to the actual feeling of what it is, this cold, this flu, or this pain... It's bearable, see? I'm not talking about extreme stuff, yeah? It's bearable. You can stay with it, you see. But when we launch it into a future, into a, a huge, awful future, then it becomes unbearable. And that's what the mind does, you see. It creates futures. You know, from anxiety, and it creates the past from regrets or whatever, you see. So uh, what we're learning is that we can take this very simple uh, experience and bring it into daily life whenever we feel rotten, bad, you see. So you get up, you feel depressed, and you think, God, the whole day is going to be depressive, you see. So now you're living in this, in this imaginary future which is going to be totally depressed. Whereas if you go into the depression, it's just, it's just heaviness. It's just, okay, yeah. It has an effect, it makes you less efficient, etc. But you can run with it, you can walk with it. See? So that's the purpose in our daily lives of getting this equanimity, this acceptance of the way things really are. See? So that's the difference between noting pain and noticing, feeling, feeling the sensations. Yeah, the two distinct processes. Um, in, yeah, this process of investigation... Uh, I'll come to that when, when we do the factors of enlightenment, which I'm going to do tonight. Um, you, sometimes I use uh, Saidu Pandita's phrase of plunging into the object. And what, what, what he meant and what, what I'm uh, pointing to is the fact that that first position of being the objective observer is, is, shall we say, too distant for real insight. One has to go towards the object, as it were. And it's like microscoping in, you see. And as you do that, space begins to reduce and time begins to reduce, see, till you're actually really focused. And at some point, if the focus is really spot on, the intellect shuts down. You don't have to stop thinking. It just shuts down because the whole attention is absorbed into that act of knowing and feeling. See? Um, you get it sort of naturally when you trap your finger in a door. Just for that one moment, there is total focus. See, it's not as though we don't know these things. It's just, it's just making them, um, making them a, a, a technique to understand. Uh, yes, contentment, the feeling of contentment is sometimes so strange to us that um, it's like we don't know what to do. Because we're so used to actually chasing something, getting something, wanting something, and suddenly, oh, it's, it's all right, you see? Then we think, well, it's, this is boring. That's it, you lost it, see? <laughs> so when, when you get to these nice little places where there is no desire in the mind, really taste it, because that's one of the um, qualities of Nibbana. No desire, in the sense of wrong desire, you know? Neutral feelings, you know, to sort of develop a taste for neutral feelings. Peace, 
stillness. See? And you see, that, that becomes a sort of uh, mental habit. So it becomes a substrate in your life. And you know how to approach it, how to develop it. Even in daily life, even in the busiest of workplaces, you can still find that substrate of just calmness. That's the importance of this quiet abiding, you see. And you develop it, it's like anything, you do it in little blips and blobs over time, you see. You can't just come on a retreat and do it and expect it to stay with you. Every day you've got to sort out one specific time where you practice it, morning maybe, and then keep reminding yourself during the day just to relax into the present moment wide awake. See? Those of you who get my email, my e-reminders, uh, will have that link to that bell you can put on your computer. See, I've got mine. Every 20 minutes. And it's funny because you sit there and ding and he goes, mm, wait, wait for the... <laughs> You wait for the ding to finish before you attack the computer again. It's not supposed <laughs> ding, it's like suspended animation. <laughs> not supposed to be like that. That's just me. Uh, remember, boredom is insidious. Boredom is insidious because it tempts you by saying, "Look, do this, and you'll be happy." You know, get distracted. Put a put a DVD on or something. See. <laughs> And what it's doing is it's developing our dependence on pleasure as happiness. See? So whenever you notice boredom, really point to it, you see? The evil one. Don't get, don't get caught up in boredom. Um, a nice little trick is to repeat your mistake. Uh, when I say mistake, I mean, you know, finding yourself in a rush, going up the stairs or something. Stop. So you go back down. Remember at school you had to do corrections. That's it. So every time you, you, you're feeding yourself and two shovels have gone in, so you just stop. See? Now you can't repeat that. But you can. <laughs> but you sort of slow down and, you know, see? and then repeat, repeat the action slowly. Uh, just observe the breath. Was that just to... Just a simple observation of the breath. Was that, was that, was that it? I've put this down, I don't quite know what I was. Yeah. Yes, um, when you're... Uh, I suppose our mistake is to always think that there should be more happening. You know what I mean? You expect, you know, like you, you've sat here, what, for four days, something should have happened by now. <laughs> but that's... That's not what we're doing, you see. It's, uh, <clears throat> I think I might have said this. I don't know whether I said it uh, in a talk, but there was a meditator who greeted Upandita with great joy and said how happy she was to see him. Have I said this? No? And he said something in Burmese, you see, and the translator didn't translate it. So later on, she foolishly asked him what he'd said. And he said, he's not here to make you happy. He's, make, he's here to make you aware. That was... <laughs> So yes, our, our, uh, our, if you want to talk about achievement, is how, uh, how good our understanding is of this level of awareness, of this level of consciousness, of understanding, and how easy it is for us to get back into that state, even though we lose it very often. See, we know how to get back to it. And, of course, what you tend to do is you get into the rush of life and you forget. So that's why this constant practice, you see. And I'm not talking about, you know, uh, one hour here and one hour there, five hours during the day. No, these are just five minutes where you just stop. Two minutes. One minute. Half a minute. You know, just stop. <laughs> just stop and say, you know, relax. Wide awake. So. Uh, I think I'm... Did I answer this? Is there a way to make the noting more simple? I did, didn't I? Shorter list that covers the thoughts and emotions that arise. Uh, yeah, I think I answered that. Um, it, remember that you're not searching for a word. Don't spend, don't spend time looking through a dictionary or anything like that. It's a case of, 
if a word comes, that's the word, and if not, some generic word, feeling, you know. It's just really to keep that intellect occupied. Uh, when I really focus, my body gradually becomes numb and even rigid, and I'm becoming more aware of some subtle energies inside the bodies. Uh, is this okay? Yes, because um, when, you're, when you're really uh, focused and still, you see, the body will begin to shed its own uh, pent-up emotions, pent-up stress, pent-up... Whatever's pent-up in the body will be allowed to manifest. So just sit with it. And it'll, it'll clear in its own time. Uh, when do you think most humans want or need also to use a thinking mind? Do we need to give this a special time or should we just give it up? No, you see, um, the paradox of the situation is this. This faculty that knows, this knowing... Hmm, doesn't know what it knows until it tells itself. I'm sure you've all had those wonderful moments when you've said something to your enormous surprise, which has been very wise. Huh? And everybody's looked at you and said, my goodness, that's a very wise name, isn't it? And you thought, where the hell did that come from? See? So <laughs> this is this intelligence that we have, you see. It has to use the phenomenal world in order to make itself wise. That's why, you know, without being too metaphysical, that's why it's here. See? And if you know, you see, what happens to the Buddha is, in his youth and in his early manhood, right till he left home, perhaps even during his training, uh, he would, I'm sure, have joined in these big discussions that the ascetics would have in open parks, so on the full moon night, it was, their, it was their entertainment to go out into these parks and meet these um, different, different ascetics and talk about, um, talk about metaphysical problems. In fact, uh, after the order was established, the lay people complained to the Buddha that you know, the monks, they would go to his monks and they just sat there like dumb pigs. So then he made this rule that they had to, they had to answer any question concerning Dharma. See, so he must have he must have enjoyed the argumentations and the and the clever uh, the clever discussions. And later on, he 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 warns not to get into those silly debates because it's all about ego and winning and losing and stuff like that. But when he has this experience, when he finally becomes liberated, it's that very thought which allows him to express his understanding. Yeah. And like anybody who has a thought which is, any uh, person who has a thought which, as it were, overreaches the culture they're in, they're struggling to find the words, struggling to find the words. See? So when he uses the word consciousness, it's very difficult for us to understand that, that he's using it in two ways. He's using it both as a, something to do with the structure of the mind, of that discernment that the mind is capable of and expresses itself through the intellect, and an intuitive intelligence which grasps things. See? He has to use the same word. He doesn't have words to express, really, the uh, experience he had. So it's not as... You see, that's the point. The whole process of liberation... Uh, doesn't destroy anything. It just purifies it. He's clear about that because because of his negative way of expressing the ultimate truth, the unborn, the undying, we say it every evening, uh, well, no, with the Vipassana guidelines, um, he was accused of being an annihilationist. And he insisted the only things that are annihilated are greed, hatred, and delusion. See? So he wasn't an annihilationist in the sense that um, there was nothing else but matter. He wasn't a materialist annihilationist. And there were materialist annihilationists in his time, just like we have today with um, the great guru Dworkin and people like that. May he be saved. <laughs> when do you... <laughs> so you don't, lose your, you don't lose your emotions. You don't lose your heart life. See? It's purified. Because everything is transformed. 
So the Buddha heart is one of love, compassion, joy, and peace. See, and they're illimitable in the sense that um, there's no there's no conceivable uh, end to how much they could be developed. So it's, it's as big as you want it to be. Charismatic. Uh, what can you say about engaged Buddhism? Is there a need to express ourselves, contribute to that? Uh, that? That's a good question for the weekend, that, if I can leave it for the weekend. Let me just make sure I've... Uh, put a little cross on that. Uh, the problem of suffering seems to be in the can't do without. Is it possible to have something one enjoys and it doesn't become a can't do without object? Well, I mean, that is the purpose of our meditation. Eh? To be able to have something and not psychologically be dependent on it. See? That's the whole point of all this eating exercise that I keep <laughs> going on about. <laughs> How can you eat without becoming psychologically dependent on food? Yeah. And that, sh- that should be obvious to you now, by the way. Yeah. The, the <laughs> After four days of me and, and Penny barking at you, you should. I think I've done that. The difference between abiding in the present moment and choiceless awareness. Yeah, I've done that, right? Okay. So um, this evening I wanted to uh, just go over the seven factors of enlightenment and uh, you know um, to, to give it a schema for you so that you understand especially those who haven't come across them before and to join them in with the five spiritual faculties uh, just very quickly the five spiritual faculties are faith uh, effort awareness concentration and wisdom or intuitive understanding uh, we'll come to that in a minute and the seven factors are awareness, and then you get uh, calmness and um, curiosity, effort and concentration, and equanimity and investigation of the Dharma. Okay? So we'll go, we'll go through them slowly. But what I would like to do is just spend a bit of time around faith, because on Sunday at 9.30, if you wish, uh, you can come and take the refuges and precepts as a, as a sort of commitment Hmm? Um, when you take the spiritual life it seems to me that somehow at some point you have to ground yourself in some tradition or some teacher Hmm? Um, it could be something like an ancient tradition like uh, Buddhism or just uh, somebody whom you um, feel has good insight and and you take them as your teacher Um, what happens when you do that, and it's an, an act of trust, and this is what faith actually means. It's not a to be confused with belief, which is faith in a statement. See, the Buddha's right and everybody else is wrong. It's more, it's more a, a, an, act, an act of confidence. And what you're doing is you're, you're sort of uh, putting a peg down and making sure that you're tethered to that peg. Right? Now, that sounds terribly constricting, but what it does, it stops you wandering off. You know, sort of ending up all over the place. <laughs> now, if if you if you look at your life and ask yourself, in what way is it integrated? What am I? You know, when when I look at all 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 that I'm doing, is it integrated or is it completely disparate? So, one minute I'm working away with this intention and for this reason. Next minute I'm uh, I'm shooting off on a holiday. Uh, just because somebody says it's, it's, it's good in, in, in Acapulco, and it's <laughs> I'm going to go one day. Uh, and then you get, um, and then next minute you're clubbing and getting drunk. Not, not you, of course. I'm just this is a general statement. <laughs> so if you look at your life, you may find that it's quite disparate and it's not sort of connected. It's not sort of it's not joined up as that horrible that horrible phrase. And what a spiritual, uh, what a spiritual peg does, or what a spiritual 
um, center does is it begins to draw your energies towards that center and make sure that everything you're doing makes sense to that center and you get that sense of your life being integrated. See, So, for instance, um, if a person were to take the Buddha Dharma, then there wouldn't be any problem with doing something like yoga or, you know, as a physical exercise, qigong. There are many things that would fit in uh, easily with uh, Buddhism. Uh, but it might become a little difficult if you have a belief system which doesn't match the Buddhas. So you're doing meditation, fine, but you'd have to be clear that you're doing meditation for some other reason than achieving or than uh, trying to make true for yourself the teaching of the Buddha. So, for instance, if you were a person who believes in a personal God, then you're up against it with the Buddha because <laughs> he said there wasn't one. So, so, you see, so you've got to, as it were, look at your belief system and where you feel the truth lies and then uh, use that to find sources which actually support your understanding. So... <clears throat> Um, that commitment, you see, it doesn't have to be lifelong. It can be for a year where you just say, well, I'm going to straighten up my life with the center of it being this particular commitment, right? In this case, uh, the, the Buddha's teaching. And then just see how it works for you. That's all. That's all you can do, just see how it works for you. If it feels good at the end of it, then you might want to re-establish your commitment by taking refuges and precepts. If it doesn't feel good, then you, then you move off. You know, this is, this is the postmodern age. Everybody wants their own portfolio. So you've got to <laughs> go around with your spiritual portfolio, you know, got to <laughs> get your little, you know, a bit of yoga, a bit of this, a bit of that, you know, fish and chips, and, you, and then you're away. <laughs> chips with everything. So... Um, uh, on, on, the, on, the, on the Sunday morning, there's that opportunity to uh, just make that sort of commitment. And we're, what we're committing to is the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Right? That's the first thing. So the Buddha is this historical figure. Uh, there's a certain trust in the Buddha as a historical figure expressing the truth as he understood it. But in the spiritual terms, it's the Buddha within it's, it's the sort of confidence or an understanding that there's something within us that is searching for Buddhahood. Huh? The Dharma is the whole teaching as expressed by the Buddha. Uh, but of course that tends to be narrowed down by whatever, um, whatever form of Buddhism that you're attracted to, Tibetan, Chinese, Zen, uh, Theravada. And then it narrows down even further in terms of practice to a particular technique because you can't do... A hundred techniques, it's just very confusing. So the Dharma is both a, um, an act of uh, faith in the general understanding that the Buddha had uh, and his propositions, and uh, it narrows down to an actual practice. And when we're taking refuge in the Sangha, which means community, uh, there's, a, there's a question on the board about uh, the, four type, the, the four pairs and the eight types of persons. This refers to the four levels of, of um, sainthood, for want of a better word. So uh, there is a direct experience of Nibbana, whereby it is said that one enters the stream. So it's called a stream entrance. And that, um, that experience now makes it impossible for them not to become enlightened within, uh, well, it's said seven, seven lifetimes, which sounds a lot. But it's... <laughs> Seven more of these, oh my goodness. So, <laughs> but it, what it's saying is that, that there's no more confusion as to where the way is for that person. And the second one, the, um, the tendencies towards greed and towards hatred are undermined, attenuated. And there's a real purification of the heart, but they still have to be reborn, especially in this realm, it's said. In the fourth one, the, all the ties to the sensual world are cut. So there's no attraction to come back here, see? And therefore they live in a more um, mental world at which they can make their way to full liberation, you see? So these are, these are the four pairs. Now, that's where our trust is. Our trust is in people of the past and even of, of the present who've had those sorts of experiences because they're witness to the Buddha's own truth. 
They're actual living witnesses to the Buddha's own truth. Uh, but, you know, we can also take it in a much wider sense that you're, you're trusting the, the whole community. Traditionally, it's only those, um, those no, the, the noble ones, as they're known, the Aryans. Uh, but I think it's also helpful to feel that you're part of a community. And you'll notice that all religions uh, have a strong accent on community, you know. You get that especially in something like um, Islam, you know, with the Ummah. They're very strong on that. So why, why is it strong? Well, Ananda says to the Buddha, asked the, said to the Buddha, he's one of, remember he's one of these uh, people who felt that because he'd understood something, he'd really grasped it. So he said to the Buddha on one occasion, um, uh, Bhagavan, I, you know, I'm of the opinion now that um, good companionship is half the spiritual life. And he said, oh, no, Ananda. No, he always says, oh, no. <laughs> you know, it's all the spiritual life. We are dependent on other people for our spiritual livelihood. See? And you know that because here you're surrounded by people of the a, of a, a same aims. You're being really supported by all these people. And when you go out into work, you see, nobody gives a hoot for this sort of stuff. They're all making money. So, and then you, you realize how difficult it is when you're, you're moving to the left and everybody else is moving to the right. So that contradiction over, is overcome by taking uh, a refuge in people of like mind. And of course, we all do it in our various interests. You know, if you're an artist, you tend to move, you tend to be interested in artists, sports people, and so on. So in the spiritual life, equally so, equally so. So that's taking the refuges. That's what it means to take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Then there's also the, uh, the moral side, the ethical behavior, which is the, four ba- the five basic sort of um, the platform of your ethical life. Remember, you can't, pro- you can't progress in uh, the spiritual life without also progressing in the ethical life. Yeah? I think I've said before, it's, it's not, it would be strange to catch the Buddha shoplifting. You know what I mean? It just wouldn't, it wouldn't fit, see? So there has to be this, this, this sort of uh, purity of heart, you see? Uh, so the first one, of course, is not to, not, to kill, uh, not to kill any living beings. That's pretty gross, isn't it? Not to kill. No, we're not talking about harming, you know, just stop killing them. <laughs> And if you consider, if the world now, if all human beings just took that one precept, what an enormous change there would be, you know, not to kill another human being, never mind other, other creatures. And uh, the second one is not to take what is not freely given, you see. So that's very, that's pretty clear, you know, not to sort of, uh, it's up to you to decide how subtle it is, you know. I mean, you might think that you own the office pen, because <laughs> you put it in your pocket, but it might, it might not be yours. And then there's that whole business of indulgence in, uh, in pleasure, uh, and it's usually narrowed down to sex because um, that tends to cause the most pain to people, sexual indulgence. Uh, the third one is uh, truthfulness, not to tell, not to tell whoppers. Truthfulness. And the fifth one is not to take things that cloud the mind, because our whole practice is about the clarity of consciousness. And, you know, so putting alcohol in the body or drugs which, which cloud that is completely against our practice. See? So now these are to be taken as training rules. That's the translation of Sikapada. Pada means footsteps, Sika means training. So they're training rules, right? They're not to be taken as sort of commandments. Uh, where you feel guilty about um, not, not being perfect in them. It's more in the sense of you establishing a relationship with those rules and working on them. And they become finer and finer and finer. So the first one of not killing uh, beings moves towards not harming them, moves towards compassion towards them. So it always moves towards the opposite. Yeah? Uh, not to take what is freely given. When we're strict with that, it moves us towards generosity. Um, not to abuse our sexual powers moves us towards proper loving relationships. Huh? 
uh, not to, to guard ourselves against wrong speech even gets as fine as exaggeration, see? But it moves us towards real open honesty. And uh, not to take drugs, drinks and all that, you know, means we remain clear. And one of the reasons that the Buddha says that you don't take those things is because it's under their influence that sometimes you do things that you later regret. So that's, in a, in a, in a nutshell, you might say, that, that's what we mean by taking refuges and precepts. You are, you're placing your confidence in a particular tradition and you are un- undertaking a certain basic ethical life. And it's from there that you can move into the finer, uh, into the more advanced practices of the spiritual life, such as this, Vipassana, see? And uh, as I say, it doesn't have to be a lifelong thing. It's more like, you know, do it for a year and see if it, see if it has some effect on you, see? So now that's faith. Uh, perhaps better translated as confidence. Uh, balancing that is this panya, this wisdom, so here the Buddha talks about three levels of understanding. The first one is the understanding you get when, when you hear something um, or when you, when you see something. So it gives you an understanding. But it's not your own uh, understanding until you've thought about it, till it becomes your own intellectual knowledge. And that would be the second stage. And that should lead us to a direct practice of vipassana where it actually becomes an experience and not something that we know not something that we've understood intellectually. So one of the more difficult teachings is concerned with this anatta, not self. So you hear about it and you're completely confused and then you, you think about it and you're still, conf- well, you, you get a bit more clarity and then you think, well, I'll, I'll have to do my meditation, you see. And then very slowly you begin to realize what the Buddha's talking about, see. And it's in that third one, of course, that there is that liberation from delusion, see. It doesn't come with the other two doesn't come with hearing something which is uh, brilliant. You're still, uh, you're still stuck in the old habits and habitual thinkings. And it doesn't come with thinking about things either. It comes through the practice. Yeah? Um, so that, those two are linked together, you see. Now that, as it were, is, the, is what's running underneath um, the seven facts of enlightenment, which include the other three spiritual faculties, right? of effort, concentration, awareness. So now you've got this um, effort and concentration. Uh, the word concentration, I think, uh, makes us tight. If, if you think of it more as um, steadiness of attention, steadiness of attention, I think that's probably a closer idea. And as that steadiness of attention grows, you get that sense of focus. See? So remember, it's more, it's more that you have faith that if you just place your eye on something, it will see. So the inner eye, as long as you just place it on something and just relax on the object, it itself just grows in intensity. See? Now, that's all the effort you need. The effort is just to place it. As soon as wrong effort comes in, it frazzles it. It becomes restless. So wrong energy is trying, see, this, this, this overexertion of trying to become concentrated. Or worse, trying to see something, see, trying to achieve something. So as soon as you find that tightness or that uh, restlessness, then immediately come back to that quiet abiding and just sort of space out a little bit. You feel it. And then go in, go in gently and just see where this other where this other energy is coming from and make that your object, see? So if you can feel this energy wanting, wanting, see? Your attention goes to this wanting, wanting. It's, it's, a, it's an over-energy, not needed, huh? a hindrance, in fact. On the other hand, if the energy does not support the concentration, then the concentrated mind falls asleep. Very nice. And it's a, it's a very lovely sleep. And if there's lots of energy in the body, if you've actually got good energy, you see, you can sit like this and anybody walking past would think, well, now there is a meditator. See? But actually you're not there. You're going to sleep. You're completely. And then you wake up and you're bright and alert. But ten minutes, one hour's gone. There's a lovely story from the Hindu tradition where... Uh, the guru says to somebody, uh, could you get me a glass of water? So he goes off to get the glass of water. He goes into meditation. Fifteen years later, 
<laughs> he wakes up, and his first words are, where's that glass of water? See, nothing's happened. <laughs> so there's nothing to be gained from unconsciousness. And that's the difference between, you know, this bobbing up and down and banging your head on the floor. That's just dullness and lethargy, yeah? But this is quite a bright state, and you wake up bright, you see. It's very restful, but nothing's happening. And that's what happens when your energy drops. That's why it's uh, very difficult to do this practice when you're lying down, because the physical energy is not supporting your practice. Yeah? If, you, if you do lying meditation, if you have to because of uh, a bad back or because you're ill, uh, although, frankly, when you're ill, there tends to be too much weakness around. It's best to do something more positive like metta practice. But even so, if you're lying down, uh, you know, use a little technique such as keeping your hand like this, you see, so that when you fall asleep, the hand wakes you up and keeps dropping off, yeah? So those two have to be balanced, um, uh, and, and you know that they're not balanced when you're getting very restless because you're putting too much energy in the practice of looking, observing, or you're slipping away into some sort of sleep place. Right? The next two which are uh, balanced is calmness and curiosity. Calmness and curiosity. Um, that's something that, in that quiet abiding, I, I sort of try and stress, just the calmness of the body, stillness of the body, calmness of the heart, silence of the mind. Uh, now, that's how you begin, but uh, remember that once you've accessed this place of the observer, of the feeler, it's as though these spiritual faculties recede back into that observer. So that even though the body's restless, one can maintain the calmness in the observer and you don't get caught up. You see? It first mirrors, the, the seven factors are first mirrored in the body, heart and mind. But then, as it were, as your uh, steadiness of being the observer, the feeler, the experiencer, establishes itself, these seven factors, as it were, recede back into Right? And that's why you can hold that steady observation even when the body is feeling very dull, lethargic, etc., etc. But every so often, of course, these clear, and it's as though the body mirrors back to us these lovely qualities of calmness, uh, a very fine energy, peacefulness, and all that sort of stuff. Now, this calmness is something which supports the curiosity or the investigation you see, um, if there's not calmness there, then the curiosity is wavering. It's, it's being, it's not, it can't remain steady. It keeps moving. See, it has to be a calm observation. Uh, you know, one of the great, one of the images I always use is of the bird watcher. See, remember, he's got his sandwiches and his flask of tea and he's just looking out through this hole. He's calm. See, he's not, you know, and he's, he doesn't want to write a bestseller. And he just, you know, there's no reason. He's just watching birds. And it's that sort of calm investigation, calm curiosity. And that curiosity is not coming from a place of I know. It's always from a place of not sure or don't know. So that's the essence of a spiritual curiosity. In fact, it's the essence of any scientific investigation. Hmm? You're always coming from a place of, well, I'm not sure, I don't know. You're testing something. So these two are balanced. And if you get... If the calmness is too much, then, just like in concentration, you fall asleep. If the investigation, and there's no calmness there, it becomes too excited. See, So that also begins to undermine our practice. So these two are connected, the calmness and the curiosity. And the final pair are this equanimity and investigation of the Dharma. So, investigation of the Dharma, uh, at its, at its, I mean, there's, there's first of all those three uh, characteristics of existence, which are undermining our fundamental delusion as to the way things really are. That's the way the Buddha would put it. There's, the, there's that whole business around the hindrances. How do they arise? How do we uh, undermine them? And how do we stop them arising again? That's our practice when it comes to the hindrances. 
And then there's all these factors of enlightenment which sometimes come up for investigation when seemingly everything's right but there's something wrong. And, and we're looking to see, are we putting too much energy in, too much, too much effort, are we, are we getting too calm, right? That, that sometimes occurs when the going gets, when the, when the going's good. <laughs> then balancing that or keeping that investigation clear is this equanimity. Now equanimity is coming from that place of don't know. Right? That's what, that, that's what it's, it's, it means. It means that there's no prejudice in the mind, preference. There's no liking or desire in the mind. There's no hatred or aversion for what you're looking at in the mind. Yeah? And there's no delusion about it. Now, that's a difficult one. Uh, but even so, there's, there's, it's a sort of open investigation coming always from that place of don't know or not sure. So those are your six factors, and you'll notice that one is passive, one is active. See, You get the passive side of calmness, steadiness of attention, and equanimity, and the active side of effort, curiosity, and investigation of the Dharma. See, they're nicely balanced. So you've got the yin-yang, feminine, masculine, it's all there. See, And ruling all of that which makes it very simple for us, and in fact, uh, I'm wondering why I've said all this, is the, the factor of awareness. Because what the Buddha points out is, if your awareness is correct, all the other faculties rise up to support it. You don't have to worry about them at all. Hmm? So that's why the accent in the practice, excuse me, the accent in the practice is to understand what right awareness is. And hopefully by now that has become, uh, to those especially new, has become as, as clear as crystal. Yes? Very good. So, I know. <laughs> so this, this, this awareness is uh, what we're practicing with vipassana, you see. Attaining that aloofness, you see. Looking down upon, looking at, you see. Creating a separation between the knowing and what is known, or the knower as we experience it, the witness, and what is known, you see. And if we, if we maintain that, all these faculties just come to support it, you see. So in the quiet abiding, we are developing those more passive faculties of just open awareness. And then when that's established, we just raise the curiosity. And it just, it just works for us, see. Now, even though we talk about awareness and curiosity, sati, panya, they're actually not two distinct things. One is simply passive and one is active. So it's like first you look and then you see. It's, it's the same faculty that's looking and then seeing. See? So um, uh, you could put, put them together as, I, I, think, um, I think there's a book by Jan Samedo called uh, Intuitive Awareness. See? It's the same Quality, intuitive awareness. So uh, there was once uh, a friend of mine, his car stopped in, uh, in uh, Newton Abbott here, actually. And um, I went along with him. <coughs> I went along with him, and uh, we called the AA. And, I sa- and the way he explained it to me, I said, well, it's, that's... Definitely electrical, I said. So he opened the bonnet and I, I pointed to the part of the engine and I said, well, I said, it sounds to me like the distributor. Anyway, the AA man came and uh, he immediately pointed out that the uh, fan belt had gone. <laughs> <laughs> and strangely enough, the, uh, the distributor had moved. So this shows you that, you know, somebody who knows, who's coming from a place of knowing, you see, they immediately see the way things are. But those who are deluded, <laughs> see, they need to, first of all, read about it, understand it, get training, and then they become AA mechanics. <laughs> so this is, this is all we're doing, you see, just training ourselves to become uh, real spiritual seekers. Very good, I think that... Uh, so remember those uh, faculties, yeah? The faith is your grounding, your confidence in the system. 
And, of course, the, uh, the enemy of that is doubt, especially self-doubt. Be careful of that. You know, everybody can do it, but not me. I'm special like that. So you be careful of those, be careful of those little, little things going on in your head. This is completely human. Every human being, you know, uh, can do this. Um, probably beyond the age of seven. Yeah, you can't do it under seven. You can't teach somebody to be passana at the age of five. <laughs> it's not possible. Um, and then with that faith there comes the support from the Dharma so reading about it hearing talks discussing it thinking about it increases your uh, basic understanding and then this practice uh, grounds it in an actual real experience and it's from that that one can perhaps devote oneself to the practice by establishing a connection with a tradition, and that's taking refuges and precepts. And then as you practice, these are the faculties are slowly developed, the concentration, the effort, the calmness, curiosity, and the uh, equanimity and investigation of the Dharma. Now you'll notice that apart from the investigation of the Dharma, all those qualities are just human qualities. And you can use them in any... I mean, you could take those qualities and become a computer expert. Calmness, curiosity, uh, effort, concentration. It's not not as though they are in themselves spiritual faculties. What makes them spiritual faculties is the investigation of the Dharma. So your work, you see, uh, have a look at your work because you can use it to develop these faculties in, in a different way. See, for instance, uh, when I was um, a school kid, I went for one of these holiday jobs. And it was a a factory that made cakes. And they put me on the line with these very expert women. (laughs) And these cakes were whizzing along, see, and my job was to put the cherry on top. (laughs) And these women, you know, they they were very compassionate. And I, I couldn't get the... Damn thing. You know. So <laughs> now you see um, what these women were doing, of course, was, I mean, it become completely automatic for them. They were just having the great conversation of their lives, you see. But um, as, a, as a, an actual concentration exercise, it's amazing, isn't it? All day long, putting, the, putting these cherries on the cake, see? So even the most boring activity, you can turn to your advantage. <laughs> See, don't dismiss anything as spiritual practice. I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you, through your careful investigation of phenomena, arrive at that place of pure peace and happiness sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.